Father, we turn our hearts now to you, knowing that from you every good and perfect gift comes. Lord Jesus, you made it plain, apart from you, we can do nothing. You are the vine, we are the branches. And if we abide in you and your words abide in us, we can ask whatever we wish and it will be done for us. And so I pray that you would now give me a clear mind, a clear voice, the ability to speak only those things that are true and helpful to my brother pastors here and to church members that are here that that want to see you glorified in their churches. Help me to say only those things that are helpful for building others up according to their needs. Lead me in this time and lead all of us in our our meditations. And then as we leave from here in our practices, Lord, that everything we would do would tend to your glory and to the upbuilding of your people. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It's a joy and privilege to be with you today. And I want to talk about relying on God's word and not on techniques for church revitalization or church health, church ministry, the centrality of God's word. Now, for myself, I have been in awe of God's Word ever since I was converted my junior year at MIT, um, and I began early on memorizing Scripture uh, with the topical memory system that the Navigators put out. I was discipled by a mentor at Campus Crusade for Christ, and we started uh, right away with 2 Corinthians 5.17. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone. Behold, everything has been made new. And that was what had just happened to me. I had been made a new man by the power of the gospel my junior year. And uh, uh, the Lord worked in my life and transformed me. And then I started uh, learning scripture. And I've been in awe of the Bible ever since. And, And amazed at its depth and its breadth and its clarity and its truth. I consider the Bible uh, itself to be a miracle. Uh, I think any definition you could give of a miracle, it meets that definition. Miracles are actually hard to define. If you have a robust doctrine of providence, God actively involved at every moment, uh, sustaining, upholding everything by the word of his power, uh, it's hard to define a miracle. Theologians have a hard time defining it. If you look at Grudem's definition, it's a little interesting. You know, it's like an unusually active, you know, something like that. Like God's always active, but this in unusual, he's trying to stay away from laws of nature. C.S. Lewis just defined it this way in his book, Miracles. uh, The interference with the laws of nature by a supernatural power. I don't love that definition that much because interference is like, you know, nature can say to God, what are you doing here? Um, But nature is very aware of God all the time, but we'll go with it. Um, the sense of laws of nature, it's popular, common definition, he said, C.S. Lewis did, not a theological one. I agree with that. But I would add beyond that, that a miracle, uh, the effect of a miracle is to produce faith in the hearts of people. The Bible definitely meets that definition. The Apostle John uh, put it this way at the end of his amazing gospel in John 20, 30, 31, purpose statement for not just the gospel of John, but I believe for all four gospels. Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and believing may have life in his name. Would you not say that's the purpose for the Gospel of Matthew as well, and for the Gospel of Mark and the Gospel of Luke? All four of those Gospels are written to bring people to faith in Jesus Christ. They produce faith. So a miracle interferes in some sense with the natural order, and it produces faith in people. So how, how is that true? How is the Bible a miracle? Well, 
Faithful expository preaching of texts of Scripture week after week actually is an encounter with the living God done by the power of the Holy Spirit. The Bible itself is a supernatural book. It is a record of prophecies that violate the order of of nature. We, We are locked in time in this sense. There's a linear unfolding of time. Jesus said, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and last, the beginning and the end. James says, you don't even know what will happen tomorrow. We don't know for certain what will happen. But the Bible has specific prophecies made centuries before their fulfillment. Specific, detailed prophecies. And Christianity alone possesses this power of prediction of the future. There are no Buddhist prophecies. There are no Hindu prophecies. Prophecies. There are no Islamic prophecies except for, for those found in the Injil, the New Testament, and they don't read them the way we do. Um, Judaism has basically turned away Christless Judaism from seeing Christ as the fulfillment of these prophecies. No, Christianity alone focuses on a Bible which is supernatural and which predicts the future. And it's interesting, in Isaiah, God claims that he's the only one who has this power. He actually, in Isaiah 40 through 49, those 10 chapters in there, is dueling with the idols, with the gods that, that were drawing the affections of his people away. And he wants to take them on. He's challenging them, as it were, almost to a duel. And so he says in Isaiah 41, 20, 20, 22, 23, he says, bring in your idols to tell us what is going to happen. Declare to us the things to come. Tell us what the future holds so that we may know that you are gods. Do something, whether good or bad, so that we may be dismayed and filled with fear. So idols don't do anything, but he specifically says, do this. Tell us the future. Again, Isaiah 44, 7 and 8. Who then is like me, says the Lord? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and lay out before me what has happened since I established my ancient people and what is yet to come. Yes, let him foretell what will come. Do not tremble and do not be afraid. Did I not proclaim this and foretell it long ago? You are my witnesses. Is there any God besides me? No, there is no other rock. I know not one. He's saying, I'm the only one who can foretell the future. I'm the only one who can predict it. And I have done that. I have made statements and then I fulfill them again and again. The Bible's ability to predict the future is stunning. I'm doing a daily devotional with my son. He's a senior at UNC Charlotte. We text things out. We're going through the book of Daniel, and we're going through Luke. And so I was typing to him the daily devotion yesterday in, um, in Daniel 8, and he's like, what is this about? I said, it's about Alexander the Great and the establishment of Greek, the Greek uh, empire after his death. It specifically foretells his death at the height of his power and the dividing up of his empire into four which exactly lines up with history. He didn't know any of this stuff. I said, but most people have heard of Alexander the Great. I bet you didn't know he was predicted in the Bible. It's in Daniel chapter 8. So much so that the skeptics say it must have been written after after the fact. But the most important prophecies in the Bible, all of them focus on the person and work of Jesus Christ. Uh, The prediction of Christ. And one of the most stunning moments in redemptive history to me was the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. He goes to his hometown of Nazareth. He goes to the synagogue on the Sabbath. And the scroll of Isaiah the prophet is handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place 
where this prediction in Isaiah was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Isaiah 61. He rolled back up the scroll, sat down, gave it to the attendant, sat down, and then he said these words. Today, in your hearing, this scripture is fulfilled. What do you think that did to the people listening? What impact did that have on the people listening? That was a clear messianic prophecy. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news. And Jesus said, today, as you listen to me speak, you're having this this prophecy fulfilled. That's a miracle. That a prophet who lived centuries, six centuries before Jesus was even born, could predict in such detail the nature of his life, his death, his atoning death in Isaiah 53, and his resurrection, all of it. Now that's a miracle. But I want to speak also of another miracle, one that all of us yearn for. And that is the power of the Word of God to bring sinners from spiritual death to spiritual life. To sever the the invisible chains of sin that are wrapped around their souls, to sever those and to see them set free from Satan's dark kingdom. To see them rise up from their spiritual death in which they lived. They were living dead, Ephesians 2 says. They they were living dead, but now they're alive. This is the miracle of the new birth that only God the Holy Spirit can do, focused on the person of Jesus Christ. That new birth is a miracle, and that is the centerpiece of the advancement of the kingdom of God. And not only that, but the supernatural ongoing growth of that sinner from immaturity to full maturity in Christ by the same pattern of repentance and faith in Christ their whole lives. That is an ongoing developing work that only God can do. It is a miracle. Now that is the center of everything that we do in the work of the ministry. And the Word of God is central to that. The Word of God is central to that. It is the central purpose of the church. And it is the focus of the noble task to which we are called. So you look at the, at the, the booklet that you are given there. It talks about the noble task. Can someone read that 1 Timothy 3 passage? 1 Timothy 3.1. I'm going to do something a little unusual. Somebody who has no fear of speaking in front of a large crowd. I guess that would be all of you. All right? Somebody read that. 1 Timothy 3.1. Isn't that beautiful? He desires a noble. The word noble there, uh, the uh, other translation would be beautiful, a morally beautiful. It's a morally beautiful task to be a pastor. Someone else now, go back a couple of chapters and look at 1 Timothy 1.15 and someone read that. 1 Timothy 1.15. Timothy 1.15? Yes.
Do you notice the similarity between those two verses? Same introductory statement. The saying is true. But it adds an extra phrase in verse 15, and worthy of full acceptance. So it seems to be like even more important. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. Have you ever wondered about the present tense in that? I am the worst. Now, if you're an inerrantist, like you should be, and believe every word is inspired by the Spirit of God, how could it possibly be true that Paul, at that moment that he was writing, could say that he is the worst sinner on earth? Not was. There's a big was aspect to that. We know his whole story, but is. I'm not going to ask you to answer that right now, but that kept me kind of awake one night. It's like, how does he do that? That just seems like... Uh, like a preacher story or, a, or an exaggeration or something like that. It doesn't matter. In any case, we know our only hope to stand before a holy God whose eyes are like blazing fire and to survive judgment day is if that God would save us through Jesus Christ. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And that salvation is a miracle. It's not something we can affect ourselves. We pastors can't do it. We can't work it. We can't affect it. We can affect it as co-laborers with God, but we can't effect it. That's something only the Spirit of God can do. And so central to the work of pastoral ministry, that noble task described in 3.1, 1 Timothy 3.1, is the salvation of sinners described with the same kind of phraseology in 1 Timothy 1.15. And Paul puts himself up as a role model, doesn't he? He's effectively saying, if God can save me, he can save anyone. Don't you think that's about what he's doing? He's saying, I am the worst, but unlimited grace and patience was lavished on me as an example to sinners. So you can know God could save anyone. Is anything too hard for God? He can save anyone. But the center of that is the miracle of regeneration, And that is affected by the Holy Spirit alone through the ministry of the Word alone. That's how He does it. And so church health, church revitalization comes by the ministry of the Word of God alone and no other way. That's where church health comes from. And you can have a healthy local church. You can never have a perfect local church. But you can have a healthy local church. And Jesus came to bring that health. And he does it by the power of his spirit through the word of God. And so I want to commend that to you. Revitalization of whole churches comes by the faith of its individual members. Churches are only as strong as the health of their members. If the members are healthy, then the church will be healthy. All right. So whole churches are transformed by individuals who themselves are genuinely converted through the power of the gospel. Romans 1, 16 and 17. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is from faith for faith, just as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. The gospel is powerful. It is the power of God to change lives, to save sinners. 
Later in Romans, it says in Romans 10, 13, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But then he goes on right there in 10, 14, and 15. How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. That's the delivery system. A biography, as it were, of Jesus has to be communicated by messengers who have beautiful feet, who, who go from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth and tell people about Jesus. You cannot learn about Jesus from nature. You can learn some things about God from nature, but you can't learn anything about the Son of God from nature. The Son of God, everything we know about Jesus comes from the Bible, everything. And messengers have gone out with this word and have told people who Jesus is, his life, his death, his resurrection, so that people can believe in him and having believed in him can call on him. And that's the work that we get to do. Isn't that awesome? What an awesome work that is to do that. As it says a few verses later, consequently, faith comes by hearing Hearing the message, and the message is heard through the word of Christ. If you were to ask me, what are you trying, Pastor, what are you trying to achieve when you step up to preach on Sunday morning? There's a lot of ways I could answer that. But I go to 1 Timothy 4, 16. Paul there talks in 13 through 16 about young Timothy, his pastoral ministry, his development as a pastor. He says, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to preaching and to teaching. You know, develop your gifts so that everyone can see your progress. Keep growing in your abilities and the ministry of the Word. And then he says, watch your life and your doctrine closely. Persevere in them because if you do, listen to this, this is my purpose, you will save both yourself and your hearers. There's my goal. It's my goal right now. My goal right now, my goal on Sunday morning is to save myself and my hearers. Save myself from what? From what Jesus came to save us from. Sin. From, sins, from everything sin has done to me, everything that sin has done in the world, everything, the whole dark, wicked, evil empire of sin, to be delivered entirely from sin, that's the work of salvation. And it is not done in me yet. Oh, I'm justified. My sins have been forgiven. I am born again. I'm a new creature in Christ, but I'm not done being saved. I'm in the journey of sanctification now. I'm in the journey of salvation. I'm not done with that. My wife will tell you the truth. All right? He's not done yet. No, he's not. <laughs> My kids will tell you. He's not done yet. All right? But I want to save myself, and I want to save my hearers. For some people in my church, we have about 500 generally on a Sunday, we assume a good number of people there every week are unregenerate. They're lost. We want to see them cross over from death to life. We want to see them saved in that, in that way. But we also want all the people, even people who have been Christian for 50 years, to make progress in their salvation, to work out their salvation with fear and trembling. I want to save myself and my hearers. And that can only happen the same way it began. Like Galatians 3.3 3 says, You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now perfected by the flesh? 
The same way you begin the Christian life is the way you make progress in it. By faith in the word of God, by faith in Christ, by faith alone, by the ministry of the word. That's how we make progress. It's the same thing. Do you not see then why the word of God must be central to everything we do, everything we do in church work, everything we do, no matter, even if your church is super healthy, you don't need to be revitalized. Still, it needs to be central. That is the gospel. There's no other method given to churches by which we must be revitalized, uh, made healthy than the word of God. Central to that is the miracle, the miracle of regeneration, something we cannot do. One of the best verses on regeneration, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. What a dense verse that is and how powerful. Paul there likens salvation to God saying, let there be light back in Genesis 1. There was darkness, a darkness. And then God spoke and he said, let there be light. And there was light. The word preceded the reality. The word came before there was light. Let there be light and there's light. So God's word precedes. He speaks into existence. And so the word precedes the reality. God gives life to the dead. He he gives things that are not as though they were. And he's able to speak them into existence. And there in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, what is he speaking? What light is he speaking? A spiritual light. It's not a visible light. It's not made of photons. The retina can't pick it up. It's an invisible spiritual light. What is it? The light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Where does he speak it? Into the dark heart of an unregenerate person. And he speaks that light into their heart. God says, let me be glorious in your heart through my son, through Jesus. And there's light. And where there is light there must also be sight. There's no point in there being light if there's no sight. God doesn't need the light. He does it for us to put himself on display. He already knows how glorious he is. So he shines for us. So we have to be able to receive. Now, what is the receptor of the invisible spiritual light of the glory of God in the face of Christ? The receptor is faith. Faith. Faith is the eyesight of the soul. The eyes of your heart being enlightened, Ephesians 1.18. So the eyes of the heart are enlightened like that man born blind in John 9. He's blind and now he can see visible light physically. But that's a picture of the healing that Jesus does to our hearts where we can now see invisible spiritual light, the light of the glory of God in Christ. The same story they might have heard for years. It didn't mean anything to them. But that day, now it does. They can see in Christ crucified beauty, power, glory, love, justice, wrath. All of the attributes are on display at the cross. They're all there. And the person, for the first time, like Isaac Watts, when I survey the wondrous cross, they're starting for the first time to survey the wondrous cross. And what do they see? Wonder. They see beauty. They don't see it all that first day. They're going to be learning it the rest of, the, rest of their existence on into eternity. They'll be learning the greatness of God in Christ. But for the first time, God speaks light into their hearts and they're born again. And they're justified at that moment that that faith sees it 
and they see the glory of God in the face of Christ, and they also see themselves as the dark, wicked sinners they are. So repentance and faith is all one. It's just two sides of the same coin. They're seeing Christ, and they're seeing themselves, and they repent, and they trust in Christ. That's the miracle. Who can do that? We can't do that. Only God can do that, but we have a role to play. Because faith comes how? By hearing the word. So we get to speak the word. Isn't that amazing? We get a part in that. And so that's the central miracle of regeneration. That's how, that's how churches are made healthy because that's how people are made healthy. And that's how we keep growing. We keep growing because we hear new things. I've been doing extended memorization of Scripture ever since. So from the mid-80s. I'm in the middle, not quite middle, I'm a third of the way through Ezekiel right now. It's just about killing me. It's the hardest book I've ever memorized. Not just because it's long, it's super long, but it's just very, very difficult. The genre is difficult to memorize, very difficult. Um, And I don't know, I'm getting older. I'm not in my prime anymore. I mean, it's not just physically. I used to be able to play basketball well. I've retired permanently. Last four times I played real basketball, I got hurt. So I'm done. All right, I'm retired. It's just not worth it to get an ACL thing or something like that. Not doing it. But, you know, I'm not able to memorize as well. But, but the meditations have been rich. And I just keep learning and learning and learning and learning. And I keep growing and I keep seeing. I keep seeing the majesty of Christ. The greatness of Christ. Ezekiel 1 is a vision of the glory of Christ as a fiery being seated on a throne. Any sense that any of you have that you're underestimating Jesus? I sure hope you do. I hope you have a sense you're underestimating Jesus. You have more to learn about the greatness of Christ. And so that's the ministry. The entire teaching ministry of the church then must be based on the Word of God. We don't have time for anything else. This is a big book, friends. Lots of details in here. There was stuff in Ezekiel I'd never seen before. Stuff I did not know. So there's a lot to learn. So from the pulpit to Sunday, every Sunday school class, one-on-one discipleship, small group ministries, youth group, senior adult ministries, everything in the church should be centered on the Word of God. Now listen, I know you're going to have Christmas parties, you're going to have potlucks, you're going to do that. That's fine. I understand. But central to the work of the church, the ministry of the church is the Word of God. And what's going to happen is... When people are electrified by the Spirit and by the Word, even in those informal times, they're going to want to talk about what they're learning in the Word, and they're going to want to, that's real fellowship, isn't it? I mean, when you're sharing what's in your heart, and, and you're discipling one another, and you're, you know, that's, that's what a healthy church looks like. Now, center of all of that, obviously, is Jesus, and the center of what He came to do is the cross. Paul says, in an interesting statement, uh, not absolutely true, but we understand what he meant, Uh, I resolved, when I came to you, I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Well, we know that He didn't only teach Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Look at the book of Romans, which is a short summary of what He would have taught the local church at Rome if He'd been able to come. But since I can't come, I'm going to jot off a quick epistle to just tell you some of my teaching until I get there. How many books do you think there are in the world that explain some passage in Romans? Millions. How many words have come from the 432 verses of Romans? Staggering. So I know he didn't only teach Jesus Christ and him crucified, but what he's saying is that's the pinnacle. It's the most important thing. The center of our ministry is Christ and him crucified, uh, the death of Christ for sinners. 
Now, that was the work I had to do at First Baptist Church Durham. I've been there since October of 1998. I trusted in the sufficiency of Scripture to change that church. I was much more immature and inexperienced when I came there in 98. I know a lot more now. I know what kind of things to ask search committees, all right? Can't, you know, no, no, no. We're, we're going to find out. You're going to do a background check on me? I want you to. I'm going to do a background check on you. I'm going to talk, talk to your last three pastors. <laughs> I'm going to find out how you treat pastors. Anyway, that's a whole other topic for a whole other day. Um, but what happened in FBC? I believe in the Word of God. I believe the Word of God was sufficient, and I put all my eggs in that basket. I love Psalm 1, 1 through 3. Blessed is a man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, or stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the seat of mockers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. By the way, back then when there were very, very limited copies of the Word of God, all of them handwritten, how does an average Jewish person meditate on Scripture day and night except by memorization? Just a thought. Anyway, on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf never withers. Now listen to this. Whatever he does prospers. That's in the Bible. That's not a prosperity gospel person saying that. That's God saying it. God will bless your ministry if you'll make his word central. Central in your life, central in your ministry. If you'll trust it and trust it to do its work, he will bless what you do. I am, what Eric said, I didn't put any guarantees in my book, Revitalize. There are no guarantees of anything. There are rebels who will not follow God's word, and they will be judged. And you can have churches that, in the sad providence of God, will be, the lampstand will be removed. They will not be around in 10 years or 5 years. You might be the last pastor there. And that is sad. We don't want that to happen, but it could happen. I'm not saying it won't. But I do know you will be blessed in your ministry. You will be blessed. FBC had had many good men, godly pastors before me, but it was a church that needed revitalization. There was a faction of people who showed open disrespect for the word of God. I remember when the search committee was um, first getting to know me and they were asking me questions about church ministry and different things. And um, I had a pocket Bible, whole Bible that I could fit in my pocket back then, and I could actually read it back then. It looks like microfiche to me now, all right? But back then I could read it. And so I kept pulling it out. I said, well, it says here in Philippians or it says here in in Ephesians or whatever. And after a while, this woman just started to laugh, elderly woman who eventually became very hostile to everything. She and her husband were among the strongest leaders against my ministry there. Anyway, she just laughed. She said, you really think all the answers are in that book, don't you? (laughs) Now that should have told me something right there. (laughs) That's That's a red flag right there. But what I said is, yes, ma'am, for the running of a, of a local church, I do. All of the, not for the repair of jet engines or for how to, you know, no, pass your algebra exam. I didn't say all that. But I said, yes, for running a local church, all the answers are there. Um, we battled on gender and authority, the role of women um, at that point as deacons, etc. That really wasn't the issue. The issue was the role that the Bible would have in everything. Would we follow the Bible in everything, even if it was countercultural or unpopular? Were we going to be uh, trusting the Bible? 
So fundamental is 2 Timothy 3.16, the inspiration authority of Scripture. All Scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Just a verse before that, it said the Scriptures are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. That says it all. Scriptures are able to save you from sin and make you fruitful in your life. That's everything, isn't it? I mean, that's what we want. We want to be saved from sin and then fruitful for the rest of our lives. Bible can do that. And it's God-breathed. God mysteriously breathed out his word into the minds of the prophets, into Isaiah's mind, into Ezekiel's mind, into Matthew's mind, and they wrote under the inspiration of of God. And Psalm 12.6 says, the words of the Lord are flawless, like silver refined in a furnace of clay, purified seven times. Perfect. The word of God is perfect. Now, many at First Baptist Church fought this word. They were hostile to it. They were angry with it. I remember when we were teaching on gender and authority, I got the deacons together uh, for a Saturday morning teaching time. It was very tough, very tough. Um, some of the men, they were excited. They were glad for what was going on. It was a divided church. But some of them were very, very angry and hostile. Um, and I was making the point that we don't have the right to just grab hold of the church of Jesus Christ and do whatever we want with it. He bought it with his blood. We need to do what he says to do with it. It's his church. So I was giving that illustration. You remember when David brought the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem, remember? And how the men put it on an ox cart, and they shouldn't have. The Levites should have carried it with acacia wood poles, and they didn't follow God's law, and the oxen stumbled, and Uzzah grabbed hold of the Ark, and God struck him dead. For his irreverent act, it says. Well, as I was reading that story, one of the ringleaders, a man in his 70s, very hostile in, in every respect to what I was trying to do, he like reacted, like jerked upright as, as we were reading. I had them all open their Bibles and we were reading. It's like he'd never seen it. He, never, he didn't know it was in the Bible. And then, not speaking to anyone in particular, he just gestured toward the open Bible and said, I could never believe in a God like that. Like that. Do you see the hand gesture? What's he pointing at? The Bible. I can't believe in the God of the Bible. That man's just trying to help. What right did God have to strike him dead? Wow. I mean, you see the irreverence behind that attitude toward the Scripture and toward the God of the Bible. You, you all have read the Bible. Does God kill people in the Bible? <laughs> have you heard of the flood? I mean, I, I'm not, I don't think he even knew about the flood. It's like you didn't really, it's not an animal like a zoo story. You understand that. But I didn't get into all that. But that's another woman I remember as we're going through and we're looking at the teaching of Paul and gender-based gender roles and all that. This woman said with a lot of heat, she said, I don't care what Paul says. I know what I believe. Well, Paul said a lot more than gender-based roles. He said things about Jesus, too. I mean, we're going to pick and choose. I mean, how do, we, how do we do that? And then we had a prayer meeting, and most of the time when we had, we had extended prayer meetings, I, I was very sly in this regard during these heated times. What kind of people in your church are going to come to a two-hour prayer meeting for the health of the church? Let's put it gently, just good people. Those are going to be good people, all right? Uh, people that are excited about God's Word, they're excited. they want to be there, they want to pray, all right? Well, um, there's this one woman, though, that came, and she prayed, God, help us to know that we're a modern people, and we don't have to do everything it says in the Bible. 
She prayed that. Whereupon one of the godliest men in our church started to move his chair away from her, like kind of, you know. And his wife told him, you know, you don't have to worry about that. God has good aim. So he was afraid that he was, you know. You know. But I just said, I, I didn't say afterwards. Every, everyone in the room, their heads jerked up, and they're like, who said that? Help us to know that we're modern people. We don't have to do everything it says in the Bible. Um, I, you know, I just said later to a friend, I said, that's, you know, on my top ten list of prayers, least likely to be answered by God. Um, but that's what we were dealing with. But I knew that God's word alone was going to transform that church. And I, I wanted to just consistently just teach God's word. In this, I, my opponent worldview is what would be called the science of revitalization or the science of church work. Um, that Basically, there's a system of patterns that you follow that will make your church popular. It will make your church um, attractive to the masses. Um, and I think that science of revitalization or science of revival or science of evangelicalism approach came from Charles Finney. Um, the, the fact that you study certain techniques and if you do them, you'll get a revival every time. Uh, Charles Finney was a 19th century um, evangelist. He was a lawyer that, um, that uh, was spearheaded aspects of the Second Great Awakening. And he said this about, uh, about... Now, the thing about Finney is he was a thoroughgoing Pelagian. Uh, what that means is he completely denied the doctrine of original sin. He believed that Jesus only gave us a good example. Adam gave us a bad example. We just need to follow Jesus and his good example. That's his view of Jesus and the atonement. It's terrible. It's, it's heretical. But that was Finney. Um, on the topic of revival, he said, A revival of religion is not a miracle, nor is it dependent on a miracle in any sense. It is a purely philosophical result of the right use of the constituted means, so, as much so as any other effect is produced by the application of means. So, study religion, study churches, study revivals, draw out the principles, and apply them. That's science, friends. I went to MIT. I know that's how it works. We observe, and then we extract, and we do it every time, and it works every time. That's the approach. Well, I believe that revitalization, like revival itself, is a miracle. It's something only God can do. He pours out his spirit on people and changes them. There's not going to be 10 easy steps to church revitalization. It's not in my book. If you got, you got my book for free, it's not in there. It's not 10 easy steps. You can actually Google that. I did it while I was writing that book. 10 easy steps to church renewal. And there are answers online. <laughs> there are not 10 easy steps. It's just not going to happen. Now, central to the work that we do as pastors, I know that not all of you are regular preachers, but I believe this, the, at the human level, the human level, the most influential thing in the life of the church is the pulpit ministry. It is the most influential. Other things influence, that's true. But just that day after, or week after week, year after year impact of the pulpit, nothing compares um, and my, my mentor in this has been John MacArthur, who's been at Grace Community Church for 50 years. I don't agree with everything about John, Pastor John, but I learned a lot from him. He was my early mentor because I listened to uh, Grace to You right after I was converted. Um, 
I now have almost been at First Baptist Church Durham as long as he was at Grace Community when I came back in 98. So I'm almost to, his, to the halfway mark of MacArthur's long tenure there. Um, I'm not going to catch up with him, though. He's 25 years ahead of me. But his slogan is, Unleashing God's Word One Verse at a Time. Uh, sequential exposition. Now, I don't think that's the only model of healthy pulpit ministry, but I do commend it. So books of the Bible in a sequential unfolding path is a good strategy for uh, the ministry of the Word of God. Not everyone did it. Spurgeon didn't do it. Uh, Not at all. I mean, I don't know how he decided what would follow the last week's sermon. I'd be interested in knowing what that thought process was, but he was able to do topical preaching with good sound theology in his own way. But as you go through and you're just going verse after verse, you're going through passage after passage, people will learn to trust you as a faithful shepherd and to trust God's word both in the famous verses and in the ones they'd never heard of before. And they're going to move through and learn things with you. You'll be learning things too. You'll see things you'd never seen before. And as you meditate and as you unfold, you're all going to have the thrill of discovery. And at the center of that thrill of discovery will be Christ. Now, John Calvin is another mentor for me. I did my PhD on Calvin's eschatology. I learned a lot from John Calvin. And he began the Institutes of the Christian Religion with this statement, nearly all of the wisdom that we possess, that is to say good and sound wisdom, consists in two parts, the knowledge of God and of ourselves. Those are two great poles that you take toward every passage. What am I learning here about God? What does it teach me about God? And what am I learning about myself? And you know why the Bible is forever relevant in every generation? Always relevant. Because, number one, God never changes. He's immutable. He will change how he deals with generations or people. He'll do different things at different times. But he himself never changes. How he was when he did the Red Sea Crossing is how he is now. But number two, the human condition doesn't change either. I mean, we're more technologically advanced, it's true, etc. but don't we commit the same sins? Aren't we struggling with the same things? When Jesus in Mark chapter 7 talks about the, the, the pollutions and defilements that come out of the human heart, and you look at that list, out of the heart comes sexual immorality, evil thoughts, murder, uh, covetousness, greed, you know, pride, all of these things, and it's like, yes. That is the human condition. That is my condition. I still battle with those sins. And so those two aspects, the unchanging nature of God and the unchanging nature of the human condition means the Bible's forever relevant. You don't need new gadgets and gizmos for your church. You need to take the Word of God and deal with it honestly and teach what it says about God and about us with Christ crucified and resurrected at the center so that's what I sought to do. Now let me close with some applications to you, uh, to you practical applications or questions maybe, some, some practical steps for you on this topic of the cent- centrality of the Word of God. Number one, look to your own heart and life first. Are you having a, a daily quiet time in the Word? Are you feeding your soul every day in the Word of God? I don't mean for sermon prep and all that, but are you staying healthy in the Word of God? Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. The Bible is like food for you. Are you feeding yourself? Secondly, I would advocate that you memorize Scripture. I would advocate that you memorize even whole books of the Bible. This is our work. 
This is what we're called to do. And I can make you this promise. If you would take the time to memorize an epistle, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, something like that, and it takes you six months or more, and you finish and you're able to recite the whole book, you will not at the end of that think to yourself, that whole thing was a waste of time. Wish I'd never done it. I'm going to make you that promise. You will not think that. Instead, you'll say it was hard work, but boy, am I glad I did it. I learned things I never knew before in that book. Now I'm ready to do my next book. And you just keep going after it. So I would just commend memorization of books of the Bible. Third, trust in the Word of God to revitalize your church. Trust in it. You know, Sennacherib's field commander said to Hezekiah, he asked him a very important and interesting question. Though he was a corrupt man and he was representing a corrupt man, he asked an important question. On what are you relying that you're defying my master, the king of Assyria? Well, just take the rest of that out and just say, on what are you relying? And he gave an image of, he said, I think you're relying on Egypt. But Egypt is a splintered reed of a staff which pierces a man's hand if he leans on it. It's actually a very helpful picture. If you rely on something other than God and his word, it will be like that splintered reed of a staff that will pierce your hand if you lean on it. It will not support you. So I'm asking you, what are you relying on for the health of your ministry and the fruit of your ministry? What are you relying on? It needs to be the word of God. Put all your eggs in that basket. That's Psalm 1. Trust that if on his law he meditates day and night. I know that the Bible tells you to do things. So I'm not saying just read it, memorize it, and don't do it. No, then you're in the book of James, a faithless hearer only of the word. I know you need to go out and do it. But I'm just saying you need to know it before you can do it. And we already know so much, but I'm saying ultimately you're relying on the word. Fourth, reject human techniques and transferable concepts that are guaranteed to do what only the Word of God can do. Reject them. Don't look for them. I, hope, I don't think you came to this conference thinking you get those here. That's not what this is. What we're saying here is the Bible alone is sufficient to make your church healthy, and yourself too. Fifth, if you are a regular preacher of the Word, embrace expositional preaching as the centerpiece of your ministry. Seek to feed Christ's sheep faithfully with nothing but the Word of God. Have them excited to come to the church and find out what's next in the Gospel of Mark or what's next in one brother is, is preaching, just begun preaching through Amos. What's going next in Amos? People get excited about it. They read ahead of time and they find out where we're heading. Make sure that when you preach, the main point of your sermon is the main point of the text. That's expositional preaching. And then I would go beyond that and say, if there are significant subpoints then make those significant subpoints of your sermon. Not the main point, but they're, they're, you can handle more than just a one main point. We can learn some different things. And so then people get an education in theology. They get an education in the, in the greatness of the truth of the Bible just by listening to you preach for five years. And just a sequential exposition. And if you're a lay leader, not a preacher, pray for your pastor to preach like that and minister like that and to trust like that. Pray, pray for your pastor to be like that. If, you're, if your church is searching for a pastor, search for a man who will do that. Be very confident in the power of the Word of God. Never be ashamed of anything the Word teaches. I have to be honest with you. When it came to gender and authority, the question of feminism, the question of gender-based roles, I got sick of the topic because it was causing me trouble. 
I didn't like looking like a chauvinist. I didn't like looking like a bad person. I would like to just fit in and be liked. We all want to be liked, don't we? But the Bible's not going to make you liked. Let me ask you a question. How liked was Jeremiah the prophet when he was telling besieged Jerusalem, your only hope is to surrender to the Babylonians, open the gates and go out and surrender and then you'll live. How popular do you think that made him? God is not hearing any prayers for Jerusalem. Jerusalem's finished. You need to repent and go out and submit to the Babylonians. I think Jeremiah had the hardest ministry in the Old Testament. Was he a popular man? No, but he was right. He was teaching the Word of God. Now, that's no excuse for being an unkind or surly or tyrannical pastor. That's, that's a different matter, and that's your personality or that's your sin. But the, the text will bring us to dif- into, into difficult waters, into controversial places. And so trust God's word. Don't ever be ashamed of the word of God. And teach the congregation the value of the ministry of the word of God. All right? Make certain that your church knows that you are primarily a minister of the word, primarily a student of the word, that you are a man of the word of God, that they know that that's your work reset their expectation. I know it's hard in small churches where pastors have to do most of the functions. I understand that. But just that primarily it's about the Word of God. Now, in church revitalization situations, the immaturity concerning the Word of God can be appalling. Be patient with people. Be patient. People grow slowly. It takes a while for them to get used to the majesty and the greatness and sovereignty of God as clearly taught in the Bible. They're not used to it. And it takes a while for them to Uh, to learn it. So let's close in prayer. Lord, thank you for the brief time that we've had to share in your word. I thank you for these men uh, who are here that are ministering the word of God so faithfully week after week. Thank you for all that are here today, um, both brothers and sisters in Christ that are here because they love Christ and they love his church. I thank you for Eric and for his ministry here in this church. And I just pray that you would bless and strengthen him and Brainerd Avenue Baptist Church for hosting this event. And then all of the churches that are represented, Lord, help us to be shining, lights shining in a dark place, shining with the light of Christ as clearly taught in the word of God. Help us to be that light shining in a dark place. In Jesus' name, amen. Two journeys. Could you could just talk through what is two journeys, what they yeah. expect to find if they go there, why they should take those materials. Yeah, um, two journeys is a compilation of my preaching and writing ministry over 24 years at First Baptist Church. So I've been through a lot of books of the Bible completely. And so we just make that available. We have some very dedicated brothers and sisters that have transcribed my sermons because I know sometimes you don't have 45 minutes to listen to the whole sermon so you can word search and get to a section, um, which I've done with other pastors who I rely on. So Two Journeys is a website, and a website has materials that I make available to people, um, you know, articles, different things that I've written. So um, there's a card on the little black table back there which gives all the website information. I would definitely commend it to you and urge that you pass it on to mem- members of your church and all that. We just want it to be used, just like many godly men and, and women that have, have ministries online and they like people to go to their, their ministries. I feel the same way. So thank you.